Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Back to the show today. We have joining us from, is it Kansas City? Is that right? Yeah, Kansas City area. Kansas, yeah. We have the Reverend Adam Hamilton. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Luke? Good. Do you like, do you like the Reverend? That seems like it would be, I, I've never been called Reverend before, but I, I feel like I would like it. Yeah, I just tell people call me Adam. Adam, <laughs> so I'm really, I'm not big into the title, so no. I'm, well, yeah. or you know, you can call me His Holiness if you'd like. Okay, or the that's very Doctor, Right Reverend, <laughs> if you want. All that's good. That's that's, that's all great. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll I'll uh, I'll work on that. Just, okay, just Adam's good. <laughs> Adam or Reverend, Most Holy, we'll, we'll, one of those two. Okay, so you wrote a book entitled Unafraid. Now, as a podcaster, I get books that come into my office like every day, which I'm assuming as a pastor, you have the same thing. Books just sure. show up at your office. And I have a stack of books right now behind me that are like, hey, these might end up being podcast books. And there was a stack, uh, on the stack, there are two yellow books, both titled Unafraid. When you saw that there was another book with the same title and the same color, were you afraid? <laughs> no, I wasn't afraid. It was funny. Um, so we had signed on for this deal in uh, June of nineteen or Ju- June of twenty sixteen, and uh, it was I don't know eight months later. Um, Harper once sent me a book to review, and it was this other book, Unafraid. <laughs> and and I called my publisher. I'm like, guys, there's another book. I looked at it, and the book was about something completely different. But I uh, and it was actually it looked like a pretty good book. But mm-hmm. and I sent a note to the author, and I said, hey man, I'm not gripping off your title. I just want you know, I had this deal signed, you know, well before I ever saw your book, but uh, it was too late to change our title, and I actually liked the title a lot, and I felt like it really spoke to what we were trying to address. So, no, I wasn't too afraid about that. And and you know, you figure out a book comes out a year apart from each other, or nine months apart from each other, you don't worry about it too much. It's uh, people don't remember the titles, and they're not copyrightable. And so, you know, my thinking is, you know, maybe if my book comes out, somebody will look at his too, and you know, I, I don't know if anybody look at mine from his, but I don't. It just was, uh, it, but you do think, yeah, gosh, I wish I wish it hadn't had the same title. Well, I'm glad I brought that up and hopefully confused some people too. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Luke. With Corey, is, what was his name? Uh, Benjamin I, Corey. Yeah, that's who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, hopefully just buy two copies of the book, uh, Unafraid. Yeah, Get one exactly. from each author. Yeah, we'll do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right on. Okay, so you, um, so the story is you do a, a study of, your parishioners at your church, the, uh, the Church of the Resurrection. What's yeah, the name? Yeah, it's yes, the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. Okay, and so it's a pretty large church. You said you're expecting twenty eight thousand this weekend for Easter Sunday. Right. Are you going to count them individually? Actually, we do. We we keep track, and we have them log in their attendance. So they uh, they sign in, and we have volunteers come in and, and actually personally enter every name into and our online community as well enter their names on the database, and we keep track of attendance. Okay, so, so uh, how, average Sunday, who, how many people are there? Uh, last Sunday we had 13,000. Okay. Uh, we'll be anywhere from eleven to 13,000 on a normal Sunday, and high Sundays we might have 14,000, 15,000. And okay. then, of course, Christmas. Christmas we had 34,000, and Easter we'll have about 28,000. Okay, so the average Sunday, eleven to 13,000. How right. many of those people do you know their name? Uh, do I personally know their name? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I I think I have about three thousand people's names in my memory. That's pretty and, good. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's too bad. No, that's and okay. uh, and I recognize a lot of faces, but mm-hmm. you know, anymore. And I tell the people, I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, I want somebody to know your name around here, but it's probably not going to be me. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, there's somebody, a small group, a pastor, yeah, a, of course, a leader, or something. You know, we want everybody to be known. But that's the you know, that was the hard thing about the church growing so large for me personally, because I'm a very personal, you know, I like to have a relationship with everybody. I want to know what's happening. I want to be, be there for them. And as the church grew, I found that lasted until there were about 300 people a Sunday in worship. 
And then at 300 a Sunday, I no longer could really be involved in all the things I wanted to be involved in. Yep. And, you know, the larger you get, the harder that becomes. Uh, Eugene Peterson, I think, has talked about that 300 number, where once yeah. it gets over, you can't pass. And, and I came from a church of 100 people, and now uh, last Sunday our church had 1,000, which seems wow, like that's great. nothing compared to the number you just said. But one of my struggles is that what you experience, like as a pastor of a hundred member church, like, you know, people, you know, everyone's issues and what's going on and their kids and everything. But when you get to over a certain size, like you just, you just can't. And so when you have, you know, 3000 names, there's 13,000 there, 10,000 people, you don't know their name. What is your official phrase that you use when you see them? Hey man, what's up, dude? How's it going? Uh, partner? What do you, what do you go with? What is a Kansas City greeting? Well, first of all, we're helped because we wear name tags, which I know a lot of people hate, but I, uh, you know, I'm just like, I want to call you by name. And, and here's what I find. So people, you know, bag the name tag idea, but people sit in the same row in your church mm-hmm. almost all the time. They sit in the same section. They sit within a row of the same place. After the third time of introducing themselves to the people they only see on Sunday, they're too embarrassed to ever ask again. And so without a, name yeah. tag, without a name tag, everybody's playing the game that you just talked about, you know? And so if you have a name tag, eventually I get to know you and remember your name and, yeah. and I don't feel as disconnected. And so, um, so we do that. And, but no, I, you know, a lot of times I'll say, okay, I, I know your face. Can't remember your name. Remind me your name. And I just come out and tell them that, you know, remind me your name. And, and pretty much they know, you know, and, and I'll tell them, I'm, and I tell them before they join, look, I'm embarrassed by this. I really want to know all your names, but but if I don't, please remind me of your name because I care. You know, I care, and I want to. I want to call you by name. And yeah. we found, you know, calling people by name is really important. So, yeah, that's part of the challenge. I mean, there's something in the Bible about Jesus calling people by name and people knowing yeah. Jesus. It seems like it, it should be in there. So you guys yeah. have thirteen thousand name tags on on an average Sunday. Good well, they don't all wear their name tags, but many of them do, and, I, and so yeah. I'm gonna be real honest. I wouldn't wear a name tag, and you would. Or I you wouldn't. Would not? No, I would. If, yeah. if I'm yeah. the preacher, I would. But as um, I'm just saying, I'm not that good of a person, and so maybe I need to <laughs> hear you preach more, and then I would become a better person because you know. Yeah. But I get the I, the argument makes sense to me. I get it. Well, and I'll tell you what I like is when, and I tell them when they come forward for Holy Communion. So Sunday we had the Eucharist, mm-hmm. and when they come forward. I will call them by name if they're standing there, like, you know, Susan, this is the blood of Christ shed for mm-hmm. you. And But I've also told them, even if you're, my mom goes to our church, I won't even call her by name if she doesn't have her name tag on. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, so if you if you want people to know you and to be known, it's just a, it's a tool. But in, yeah. And again, you know, I know a lot of people, I was at an event recently, uh, and people are like, oh, come on, seriously? That's just like horrible. And I'm like... Well, I don't know which is more horrible to go to church with the same people and to sit next to them for 52 weeks a year and have mm-hmm. them not remember your name because after the third time they stopped asking yeah. or to really give people a chance to try to learn it, you know? And so, but I mean, I'd say half of our people wear their name tags, half of them don't. I, again, uh, I fully agree with what you're saying. I don't know if I'm yeah. a good enough person though. Uh, yeah. I'm just being, a, but you're right. Like, I love the idea of like, you're not going to yeah. call your mom by name if she doesn't have a name tag on. I did. Right. I did my grandma's wedding, which is weird enough in itself. And I, every time I do a wedding, I always write the person's name in big font at the very top of my notes. And I even did that with my yeah. grandma. I wrote grandma at the top of the notes. Because <laughs> exactly. if you get it wrong, like when you're taking communion or experiencing Eucharist or you're in a way, like you just can't recover from that. So Well, and that's, and that's the thing. That's why I, I tell them, you know, I'm not going to call you by name, even if I know your name. Because if I just get it wrong in the moment and you're receiving the Eucharist and I've called you by the wrong name, 
it just kind of blows the whole Eucharist for you. Yeah. You know, now you feel like, oh wait, my pastor's been my pastor for fifteen years and he doesn't even remember my name. Yeah. So you know, it's just kind of a yeah. I yeah. get it. I get anyway. it. Okay, so okay, going back to um, of your uh, parishioners, you had twenty four hundred participate in a survey about the idea or the issue of fear. And the right. results were overwhelming. 85% had a moderate to significant amount of fear. When you s- right. sent out the survey, did you expect to have that high of number of prisoners with issues of fear? I really didn't. And, you know, I'd say, so moderate fear means I live with, I, I recognize my fear. I feel it, you know, with some regularity across the course of my life. I'm not debilitated by it, but I feel it. it the, the other answer was, you know, every once in a while, but not often. So, Moderate is, yeah, I feel fearful on a regular basis. Severe is, or significant is, it's debilitating to me, you know. And, and when I looked at the survey, one of the things that surprised, two things surprised me. One is the high levels of significant level of fear. So 45% of young adults 18 to 35 reported feeling or living with significant levels of fear. That's pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's, it's, you know, 87 or 88% altogether for the young adults, but 45% with significant levels. And, uh, and then one of the things I found interesting is that the older we get, uh, our significant level of fear drops dramatically. So mm-hmm. those who are over 75, only 21% reported living with significant levels of fear. So uh, I was expecting the opposite. I thought older people might be more fearful. Yeah. Younger people might be more courageous and you know, risk-taking and less fearful. I found just the opposite in the survey. And uh, so that was, that was interesting. And then we asked, what are you fearful of? Yeah. And we gave them like 24 responses. They could pick the top three. And... Uh, and we found the fears of those over 50 were quite different from the fears of those under 50. Mm-hmm. And so those under 50 uh, were, uh, well, I'll just tell you, that it, if you're interested, the top five fears you want to know? Uh, let me guess. I bet under 50 was failure and disappointment of others. Yeah, those were the top it's, two. It's almost like I read your book. It's almost like you read my book. I guess that's right. You did. You read past the first par- <laughs> first chapter. You know, a lot of times I do these interviews and people only read yeah. the first chapter. And, so. and over 50, it's direction of country. Right. That's exactly right. You're amazing. You're psychic, and you remember what I wrote in my book. It's, That's good. It's amazing. It's like I have notes in front of me or something. Who, who exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What? Yeah. So that was it. You know, personal failure for those under fifty. Uh, personal failure was a big deal, and uh, and and disappointing others was number two. Number three was uncertainty about the future. The one fear of the death of a loved one. And um, for those over fifty, it was the direction of our country, uh, finances for retirement, uh, aging. Uh, loss of mental capacity and dependency upon other people. The aging and the finances, like that, that makes sense. You know, you're getting closer to you know death and and retirement that becomes far more pre- prevalent. Why do you think it's direction of country? I, judging where like your stance and your church's stance on LGBTQ and acceptance and affirming of that, it would make right. me think that your church is probably not all Republicans. Is that fair right. to say? And yeah, yeah. And so I would assume, like, if it's strongly Republican church, maybe that would be the, the language. But why do you think that is with older people? Okay, so uh, here's what I'd say. First of all, we're 60-40 Republican Democrats. So we're in a red state, or a pretty red state, and a pretty red county in a red state. So we're purple. We're 60-40. Okay. And, uh, and what I'd say is that the and, – and our demographics, you know, we have more of our older adults are Republicans, more of our younger adults are Democrats. Yeah. And uh, so among our older adults – in 2016, when we did the survey, the fall of 2016, uh, of course, President Obama was in office. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. Mm-hmm. And so Republican fears were really high about the direction of our country after eight years of President Obama. 
when President uh, Trump was elected, I will tell you, if we did the same survey today, we would find that that may not be number one among our older adults. Mm-hmm. And many of the older adults, though, they in our congregation, they're not fond of what Trump does or says. But many of them are fiscal conservatives. And so, you know, they're... Uh, they would say, you know, we're not afraid. We feel like we're heading in the right direction. Yes, we don't like these things he said. And today it'd be my Democrats who would be most fearful about the direction of our country. Um, so yeah. that tends to flip in national surveys, too, based upon whichever party has the White House. The, op- the opposing party is fearful about the direction of our country. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense. You said your church is yeah. 60-40. How, n- not many churches have that sort of political diversity. Why do you right. think your church has been able to have that sort of diversity? Yeah. So part of what I've emphasized from the beginning of Resurrection was this ability to um, stand in the center and hold together in tension things that, that other people tend to tear apart. Methodists are, are kind of like that, this idea of the via media, which comes out of the Anglican, Anglican tradition, but Methodists are the same, that, uh, that middle way. Yeah. And so we tend to be a church that holds together the right and the left. People ask me, you know, are you a liberal or conservative? I can't figure you out. I'm like, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, no, which one? And I'm like, do I have to pick? Because I think those are both really good terms. You know, to be liberal means to be Mm -hmm. open to new ideas, constantly reforming, generous Mm -hmm. in spirit. To be conservative means that there are some things you conserve and they're really important. You don't, you don't toss them aside because they're no longer in style. Those two are two halves of a, you know, since we began the church. So, you know, I went to, uh, I came to faith in a little Pentecostal church. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma to study to be a Pentecostal preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I always had a lot of intellectual questions. And, and after my first year there, I found it didn't work for me, the sort of approach that I had been taught, you know, a kind of black and white approach to, mm-hmm. to everything. And, uh, and it was then that I you know, started studying Wesleyan and became a United Methodist. And so I went to Southern Methodist University for my grad school, a, a more, you know, slightly left of center theological seminary. And so I had both the right and the left. And what I found was there were important things on both sides. And if you can hold those in tension, you're going to find the greatest possible truth. And so that's the way I've led the church, too. And so we've said, you know what, it's a value that we have here that you're in Sunday school with Republicans and Democrats. It's a value we have that you are with liberals and conservatives. It's the, you know, you're all going to grow by virtue of this. The key thing for us is that we're we're seeking to follow Christ as best as we can understand what it means to follow Christ. And we need the people on both sides. And so, you know, that's, that's been a, it's, it's a really fun place to be. And it's also challenging, you know, sometimes I'll preach sermons and I'll get an equal number of hate mail from both the right and the left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes I'll preach sermons that just one side gets mad at and the next sermon, some of the other side will get mad at it. It's kind of interesting, but, um, but most of our people, I think value, yeah. The fact that we hold those things in tension. I think it'd probably be easier if you just had one side or the other. It'd make your job yep. easier because you know the, the party lines and the things that you're supposed to say. But I think the kingdom yep. of heaven is far more reflected in a church that is diverse politically and, and diverse in other yep. areas as well. So I, I think that's a right. great example. And obviously, it means you've, uh, you've towed the line pretty well, uh, or you know, you've, you've balanced yourself on top of the fence pretty well of not coming down as one yeah. or the other more so. Right. I mean, you know, inevitably I have people say, well, you're too liberal, you're too liberal, you're being too political or whatever. I mean, that's, we pastors hear that from time to time. And sometimes I don't very often have my progressives say, well, you're being too conservative. You know, they just, they've come to appreciate the things that I, you know, when I am, uh, you know, the evangelical bent that I have, and that's a, that's a word I hate to even use today for yeah. you know the way it's been interpreted, but, you know, inviting people to, yield their lives to Christ, to seek to follow him, to walk with him and have a, you know, have a, um, a personal spirituality, a personal relationship with Christ. 
my, my progressives value that, you know, and, and my conservatives, I think, value the fact that I push them on social issues some. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, and, and the, the key thing, I think, if you're living in that center is not to be milk toast. It's not to be, it's not to be moderate for the sake of being moderate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to have a moderate faith as in tepid or, you know, I want to have a passionate faith. But I, I talk about the, in one of my old books, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, I talk about uh, the radical center. And that radical center that's listening and trying to hold together intention these sides, and I think that's a method. In early Methodism, Wesley, uh, you know, held together the evangelical gospel and the social gospel in a in a really important way, and I think that's what that's what we've tried to do at Resurrection. Oh, that's good. Uh, you have a line in the book about when we're anxious, we seek out information that confirms and reinforces our anxiety, and yep. th- that seems like what a lot of us would want. And you know, your ability to have to be a pastor of a church that has 60% Republicans when, how many years ago did y'all uh, um, put forward your, your sta- statement and sta- stance on being affirming of uh, LGBTQ? And, yeah. And, like years ago you did that, right? I mean, it was. Well, it was, uh, so in 2004 was, uh, was, you know, all along I've been saying we're a church that's going to welcome gay and lesbian people. Yeah. Our denomination you know, has a has a statement that I don't personally agree with that uh, that says that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, and so as a denomination, we've been debating that for years and years and mm-hmm. years. As a church, I've said, here's what I've said: this is where I stand. I don't believe the six scriptures or seven scriptures, however you count them, that speak specifically to some form of same gender relationship, are actually capturing God's heart and will for his children who are gay or lesbian. I don't think there's, I think they're shaped by the culture in which those scriptures were emerged. I don't think they capture how God looks at your children who are gay and lesbian or the kids in our church who grew up here are gay and lesbian. And, and therefore I also think that, you know, my personal view is that uh, gay and lesbian people should be able to be married and married in the sight of God. The, uh, and because I haven't always believed that I understand that some of you don't believe that. And don't see it that way and don't interpret the scriptures that way. I wouldn't have wanted somebody to tell me 15 or 20 years ago, I'm sorry, there's no place for you in the church because you don't agree with me on this because mm-hmm. I might not have been a United Methodist today. So Church of the Resurrection is a place where you can, as, as long as we commit to loving people, you can be on either side of this debate. You can be somebody who says, no, I think these scriptures do capture the heart and will of God for gay and lesbian people. And I'm going to say that's fine. As long as you're caring and loving towards people, I understand where you're coming from. And as long as you can tolerate the fact that you've got a pastor who sees them differently and says, no, I think these scriptures relate to a different time and place. We're still bound by what our denomination says. And so we don't, we don't, uh, our pastors can't officiate at same sex marriages because we would lose our credentials. We wouldn't be able to be pastors anymore here. And, uh, and so until that changes, we abide by the, by the rules of the book of discipline, but we have probably eight or 900 gay and lesbian people who are part of our congregation, uh, families, married people, married with children. And, um, and so that's been, you know, that's been a source of struggle, but we, you know, my most sort of the sermon that was most clear about that, that, that sort of tipped the apple cart was in 2004. We had about 800 people leave the church over the course of the next um, 10 months hmm. upset. Uh, you talk about one of the fears people have is of disappointing others. And you tell a story about a woman yeah. coming up to you after a sermon and saying, I'm disappointed that you're my pastor. I'm a few, I'm assuming yeah. you had a few of those conversations after that sermon in 2004 where they said, oh, yeah. we're quite disappointed in you. Yeah, I, I just found in my garage, in my file in my garage, about a two-inch thick stack of emails that I had received that year. And it was painful, you know, and, and you know, 
back then that was 14 years ago. So I was 38 or 39 years old. And, uh, you know, I remember I became so depressed that I, I remember one day asking my wife, I said, you know, I don't think I can do this for the rest of my life. I thought I'd spend the rest of my ministry here at church, of the resurrection. And we were pastoring the biggest church in the denomination and where were they going to send me? And I, and so I thought I'd stay here for the rest of my life. And I told her, I can't do this for 20 more years. It's too painful. Every time I get one of these emails of somebody who says, Oh, I don't know if I can trust you with the Bible or blah, blah, blah. You know, these are people who I had led to faith in Christ. I had been there with their families at midnight in the hospital. I had, you know, and then having them tell me they didn't trust me with the Bible. And, uh, it was very depressing for, you know, it took me about a year to work through that. And I remember at one point I told, you know, I said to LaVon, is it okay if we go do something else? And she said, you know, I'll, I'll go with you anywhere you feel God is calling you to go. I just have to ask you, are you, are you running away or is God calling you to leave? Mm. And I realized God wasn't calling me to leave. I was just running away because it was too painful. Mm. But since then, you know, our congregation's in a very different place today. And, you know, the last time I preached about this, I only had a handful of people who were really upset. And one of them was that woman who, it was a sermon on this was topic really? where that woman came to me <laughs> after church and she looked at me and she said, I'm just so disappointed you're my pastor. <laughs> And, you know, my response in the book was, well, I'm a little disappointed you're one of my parishioners too right now. <laughs> I didn't tell her that, but that's what I wanted to say. Instead, I just stood there and I'm like, okay, yeah. well, you know, God bless you. You said it took you about a year and a half to work through that. What helped you work through it? Was there, were there certain practices that you found to be uh, extremely helpful during that time or specifically helpful? Yeah, it was, it was probably about a year. And I was, uh, my small group was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, those were good friends, and we, you know, we were meeting together weekly at the time. Now we're about twice a month, but uh, we'd meet together weekly, and you know, we didn't talk about that all the time. But there was a safe place for me to share how painful this was. Um, my wife was a huge, you know, supporter. I had some friends. I even had some. I had a Southern Baptist pastor who came to me one, uh, you know, pastor of a large church here in Kansas City. Uh, took me to lunch, and he said, "Look, I, I know you're going through a hell about this," and he said, "I just want you to know I love you." Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I understand where you're coming from, and I can see how you could feel the way you do. And I, I think you're, you know, you're still one of my heroes, or something. I don't know what he said, but something like that. That it's like I, you know, I've been attacked by so many people who are more conservative that I began to feel jaded towards people who are more conservative. And uh, and he helped me remember. Okay, wait a minute, that's not. So there were a lot of time praying yeah. and spending time walking and reflecting to try to figure out: Did I miss God's will? Did I misunderstand something in my? You know, am I just being too pastoral and not, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, well, you're being so grace filled, but you're not caring about the truth. Yeah. And it's like, no, I care deeply about the truth. You know? yeah. And a lot of it really comes down to the nature of scripture and how we read the Bible. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Making Sense of the Bible for Harper. And it was, uh, you know, what I wanted to do was to help the average lay person, as well as many pastors, be able to go, OK, let's look at what we learned in seminary about the Bible, how it was formed, how it was shaped, how it was canonized. Um, and let's then look at what's our theology of scripture and and we begin to realize pretty quickly that the scripture is a little more complex than what we it's not the you know god said it i believe it that settles it kind of book it wasn't written like that and so um so the issue of uh, same gender relationships and marriage has a lot to do with helping people think about well how did the bible come to be and is there is there elasticity in our understanding of it is there ways to understand it in the light of the culture and the time that might lead us to a different conclusion. And, and what do we bring to the table while we're interpreting scripture? And so uh, we've kind of gotten off track here, but that is a, uh, <laughs> that is, that, that, that was a major, you know, part of our, you know, part of that pastoral wrestling, you know, yeah. for many years was how do you care for people? And, and at the same time, when you are saying, uh, 
you know, I believe that God looks at gay and lesbian people differently than what we find in those scriptures, you're not saying anything goes, and you're not saying there aren't moral values and, and ethical parameters and, you know, when it comes to sexuality. Uh, what you're saying is that there are some people who seem to be wired differently, and, and, uh, and when you look at these folks, you ask, is it, is it still true for them what you read in Genesis? It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him helper as his companion. Or is it that God is intending them to be celibate and alone for the rest of their lives and not sharing their life uh, in that kind of loving relationship? And uh, So anyway, yeah. hey, you want to talk about fear some? <laughs> I had literally uh, like one line about uh, LGBTQ uh, which was when that woman said that. I, thought, I, I bet it had something to do with yeah. the, this subject. Uh, I didn't mean to do this for uh, 10 minutes, but uh, I'm, I, I'm no, glad no, to hear about this. this I, <laughs> I seriously have always been curious of, you have probably the largest church that is affirming in the, in the United States. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And, and a lot hinges on what you mean by affirming, you know, because uh, for some people, affirming means doing weddings yeah. and, and, you know, we, we're not allowed to do that. I didn't that. know that until and just now. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but in terms of saying yes, we welcome you, and in terms of having a senior pastor who says, and even all my staff are not all on the same page. You know, we're not all we're in different places, and that's what we said. We actually had a vote at our church council to say we are a church that says it's possible to hold either of these two views and to be someone who's striving to follow. Uh, we fall in a place where we're more affirming. It was a vote of like twenty-five to one or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, so that's yeah, and I would say we probably are the largest church like that. It's. I know a number of other large church pastors who feel this way or who are wrestling with this, but wouldn't dare say it because the fallout for them would be, you know, they'd be losing thousands of people. And for us, you know, we've been working, uh, we've been talking about this for 14 years. And so we're in a different place than those who are just now having these conversations the last year. Yeah, I I agree. And I love your statement that it is possible for Christians to think this way or that way about the subject and they can still get along. That people don't right. have to end up like, oh, well, I hate you because this is what your church or this is what your pastor, this is what so-and-so thinks. Um, like, right. it, it doesn't have to be the issue that divides everyone on. But that's right. That's exactly I, I think that's right. more a reflection of the, I don't know, the partisan politics that we're, we're used to where you have the split screen yelling at each other kind of stuff, which becomes yep. our only yep. model and paragon for discourse. And so we just take that into the church and do it with every issue that we have. And I, again, I, I think we've missed the beauty of what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be. And that's a very diverse, uh, it, it's a messy community that, uh, in your book, you talk about how you have a former zealot and a former tax collector that are the disciples. Like yeah. these are people who would be polar extremes in the pol- their political sphere. Yeah, that's who Jesus that's brings exactly together. That's exactly right. Yeah, and a friend of mine, Glenn, Glenn Miles, uh, shared this with me over a dinner conversation, and he thinks he got it from Ordberg, <laughs> so I don't know where it came from. But, but I love this idea. You know, you think about it, zealot. The zealots were absolutely convinced that the Romans needed mm-hmm. to go, and they were willing to kill. You know, by the time shortly after the time of Christ, they're carrying around daggers, yeah. you know, and killing people. And so you're talking about you know a pretty Politically, you know, very strong convictions, and and on one side, and then you got Matthew, the tax collector, who's collaborating yeah. with the Romans, and and these two are both called to be disciples. You know, you're talking about a, you know, a very conservative Republican and a very progressive Democrat, if you were to give modern day labels, and yet Jesus called them both, and they sat together, and they ate together, and they broke bread together, they followed Jesus, and I'm guessing they had some really, you know, strong conversations with each other, but the thing that united them was their desire to follow yep. Jesus. And the fact that Jesus chose people who had differing views seems to have been, it's a picture of what the church is meant to be. We are stronger when we have people 
you know, who are not all thinking the same way, you know, acting the same way. We're, we're stronger when we're taking, when we have a chance to hear different voices, I think. I agree. I also think that that first night sleeping in the tent next to uh, the zealot probably wasn't that comfortable for Matthew. He's like, how converted are you? Uh, do you still have the sword? Do you still have that dagger? <laughs> exactly. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> yep. that's, that's what uh, Jesus continues to do, call people from all over the place to, to follow him. So um, let's talk about fear. Let's just make a hard transition back to fear. Is that good all for right. you? Uh, I don't want to do you d- yeah, disservice because sure. uh, I enjoyed the book. Um, okay, l- why do you think fear? So it was a big issue for the survey that you put out. Uh, our, our church does this practice that we call prayers of the people, which, of course, we didn't come up with that phrase. Yep. But people fill out prayer cards. And inev- inevitably, the main things that comes in when we send out these prayers of the people uh, cards is fear. Like fear of all the stuff that you mentioned. Obviously, politics is one of them you know, getting older, finances, retirement, my kids, my marriage. And you have this great stat about how people perceive that now is a physically more threatening time, that there's more crimes going on, even though statistics would show that it's actually less, crime is actually on the decrease uh, right now. Uh, So why do you think people are so fearful right now? What do you think is perpetuating that? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, uh, I think the political season of 2016 raised the level of fear for all mm-hmm. Americans. In 2016, Americans were more fearful than any time since 9-11, since just after 9-11, which is mm-hmm. remarkable if you think about that. And a lot of that came from the political rhetoric, which talked about how we needed to be afraid of Muslims, we need to be afraid of uh, immigrants, we need to be afraid of refugees. I mean, there was just a lot of fear that was out there, not just at the presidential level, but at the, at the local level as well. Crime was another one of those things that people were talking about and the fear uh, related to crime. So, so you've got information that's being spread. And, and you know, politicians on both the right and the left know the quickest way to move people is to apply, appeal to mm-hmm. their fears. And you've got a 60-second soundbite in a commercial. You, you're going to use it. Fear is the, is the most powerful way of moving people. And typically, you're making people afraid of what will happen if the other party, the other guy or gal gets elected. So, so you know, Election, election politics is part of it. Part of it is the way we entertain ourselves today. So now, you know, we used to get the news in the morning and at night. Now we have our apps are giving us the news, breaking news 24-7. And you've got an entire industry that's built on trying to get people to tune in. And the way you tune in, you're not going to tune in to hear happy news. Who's going to turn into CNN just to hear happy news? You're going to tune into CNN or, you know, Fox News or whatever it is you listen to. You're going to tune in because there's something happening that you're wondering about, or you're worried about, or you need to find out about. And so, you know, with my apps on my phone, it's vibrating at least once an hour with some kind of breaking news story. Then I got an Apple Watch, and it vibrates every hour when there's a breaking news story. Then I have four news apps because I want to have some on the right and some on the left, and they're all vibrating. You know, so four times an hour at least, I'm getting a vibration telling me that something on my wrist or in my phone telling me that something bad just happened around the world. And it's hard for me to put that into perspective and remember that, hey, wait, there's 7 billion people on the planet, and, and there's one of these things that happen. Instead, it feels like, man, look at all the horrible things that just happened in the world today. And so uh, if something is you know, scary or frightening, that's what, that's what we're going to put out there for folks. I don't think the news media wants to do that. You look at the evening news, and the last story every night is some good news story. You know, They're trying to put something good out there, but... But what the media folks will tell you is people tune in because they're worried or afraid. So we got to give them stuff for them to tune into. So I think that plays some role in it as well. And then, you know, by nature, we're just wired. We, we are physiologically designed by God 
to be aware of possible threats. And this is a gift from God. It's what, it's what allows us as a human race to survive. So we have the amygdala, which are two almond-shaped uh, sets of neurons in our brain that process information from our senses. And before we even know it, they're saying, hey, this is a threat, you know, react. And that gives us the fight or flight mechanism. Then cognitively, you know, we have the ability to remember things. So our memories are stored, especially painful memories or things that were threatening. So we have in the back of our mind some things we don't even really remember, but subconsciously they're there when we were hurt as a child or something happened. And when something looks similar to that experience we had in the past, we find ourselves afraid. And then we have an imagination that imagines possible threats. And finally, we have data inputs, which include our news sources and other people that we trust telling us about possible threats. So you take all of those things together, and they, they can easily lead us to be yeah. fearful. And, and in order to deal with that, you know, what I've laid out in the book is, is a sort of four-step process using the acronym of FEAR as a way of saying these are things that human beings have always done to be able to live unafraid, to be able to face their fears and, uh, and not be overwhelmed mm-hmm. by them. And it definitely seems like you still are friends with Southern Baptist preachers because you do have an acronym for fear, which as like, <laughs> you, you really do both sides. Yeah, I, I just, I ripped them off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, you know, I, I debated that whether to put an acronym in there because I thought, uh, you know, this, it, it's easy to sort of knock those things and I agree with it. But, but I thought, how can I give people some way to remember a hook to remember these four steps? Works, yeah. And they're, you know, and, and at least for me, it worked. By the end of the sermon series, when I preached through this, people, I think, remembered, oh, yeah, there's those four things that I need to remember when I'm feeling Yeah, which are? Okay, so the first one is facing our fears with a bias mm-hmm. of hope. Uh, I describe it as facing our fears with faith, but it's not faith in God yet. This is just this is just the trust that, you know, normally things aren't as bad as they seem. We work ourselves up, but hardly ever are is the worst thing what really happens. And even if the worst thing does happen, somehow we make it through. So it's a bias of hope. And the second is, uh, so that's the F. The E is examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. So it's actually taking the time to research the thing that I'm afraid of. Don't just take it based on what a politician said or based on mm-hmm. some you know, email you got, but actually dig deep and find out what is reality of the and, uh, and so ex- examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. The A is attacking your anxieties with action. Mm-hmm. Fear is meant to move you to act. I mean, the reason why you have this fear mechanism is to move you to do something. And often we instead don't do anything. We're paralyzed by our fears, which leaves the fear still uh, working on us. And then the last thing is where our faith does come in. And that's the R is releasing our fears to God or releasing our fears to God. So facing your fears with a bias of hope, examining your assumptions in the light of the facts, attacking your anxieties with action and releasing your fears to God. And, you know, it's interesting. Most positive psychologists, most people who are therapists who are working in this field, draw upon at least three of those four in their treatments to this day. And this, if you look back throughout history, people have used these same steps. They've called them different things, but they use these same steps to confront their fears. And I think it gives you like a a handy resource that you can draw upon in those moments where you're going to, okay, I'm going to face this. I'm going to examine what's underlying this. I'm going to attack whatever anxiety I have. I'm going to let go of things that I can't hold on to. Like I, like I, yeah. like I made a joke about the acronym, but there's a reason people have done this for so long is because right. like, they work, like people hold on to them. Yep. Um, yeah. You talked about this idea of extinction, which is, uh, you connect it to Pavlov's and his dogs about how, you know, Pavlov's yep. dogs, they hear the, the, uh, the whistle or whatever, the ring, and then they start salivating. But you can also have those sort of things that are hard 
hardwired into us, like conditioned, operant conditioned, I believe is what that's called, yeah. uh, undone, and that's called extinction. Like you can, there's ways to work away from our natural responses. That's right. And then that's, you know, that's, so we learn fear from our life experiences or from what other people have taught us. We can also unlearn mm-hmm. fear. That's the whole idea. So unlearning fear is extinction. If you, and you know, it's easy to think about this when you were a kid, uh, you wanted to jump off the high dive or somebody wanted to, wanted you to jump off the high dive at the swimming pool. Well, you look at it and you go, there's no way I'm terrified. I can't do that. So you jump off the side of the pool yep. instead. You take a baby step and you go, okay, I survived that. Maybe I can go to the low dive. You're, t- you know, you're afraid to jump off the low dive the first time. But eventually you work up the courage and you jump off and you it's so scary. I, I, I think I can make mm-hmm. that. And, and eventually you climb up the high dive. You probably don't jump off. You go back down the stairs. You go back up again. You go back down. You go back up and finally you jump off and you realize I survived that too. That's a, that's a childhood example. But in our lives, this idea of facing our fears, stepping towards them, you know, uh, taking them on in bite-sized pieces is one of the ways that we conquer our fear. And so it's, again, facing your fear with the, with the bias of hope that this probably won't yeah. kill me. Now, if it's, you know, handling rattlesnakes, you probably shouldn't yeah. do that. You know, so if there's something that you really have a high likelihood of dying from, you don't, you know, you don't face your fears with hope you, or with faith, uh, a bias of hope, you actually you, run away from those kind of okay. things. Okay, so. well, my next question was, where yeah. do you think the Gospel of Mark actually ends? And I think you just answered that for me, since you're not doing <laughs> snake handling stuff. Okay, in the book, you tell a story about the Buddha. Uh, I can't pronounce his name before he was called the Enlightened One. But th- the story yeah, is, yeah. he uh, lives this charmed life, he's the son of a king emperor something like that mm-hmm. yeah well no, it's it's a it's a local king okay, a tribal, a tribal king. King. but then he he breaks free of royalty and he goes out and he sees a person who's old and then he sees someone who's sick and then eventually he goes back out and sees someone who's dead and those experiences like rattle him so much because he's like is this inevitable is everyone going this direction are we all going to be anxious and then he overcomes that and that's how he becomes the enlightened one of um right so this is a, not a, a very fair reading of Buddhism, but some might understand Buddhism as like we're just going to ascend over the the struggles of life and we're going to be dis, uh, disassociating from them. Uh, and it seems like the story of Jesus, which is again that's that's not a charitable reading of them, and obviously that's not what everyone's going to say who's a, a follower of the teachings of Buddha. But but the way of Jesus is almost like, hey, we're going to step into the sick and and death, and we're going to step into what it means. Uh, to be decrepit, uh, so many of us want to like run away from that sort of those yep. fears. How, yep. Do you feel like that's a healthy way to deal with fear, or is there better ways? Yeah. So the last section of the book uh, is uh, starts off with this interlude with uh, with the Buddhist story, and is um, and, and part of that was just to say this is something that people have been anxious about, and these are the three classic fears: growing old, getting sick, and dying. And I think Christianity offers, as you pointed out, uh, you know, I would say a better way of addressing those fears. And it's not just coming to the place where you are no longer clinging to life. That was the Buddha's answer in part mm-hmm. was that, you know, suffering comes from clinging. And so if you don't cling and you let go, then you won't suffer. Well, it took him hundreds and hundreds of lifetimes to, you know, according to the Buddhist tradition, to eventually let go. Mm-hmm. And... And I think for us as Christians, we look at this and we say, wait a minute, there's a difference. We, uh, we try to understand them. We, you know, lean into them. We do, we take action where we need to. In other words, like when it comes to our health, we try to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. and we, you know, but, but we also have this sense that whatever happens in our lives, God walks with us through it. What makes me not, you know, and, and so, 
So releasing our cares to God and faith is not the only answer to fears, but it is a very powerful answer to fears. And I mentioned in the book, long before Zoloft, uh, Zoloft and Xanax were invented, there was prayer and spirituality and releasing our fears to God. And so for me, when I'm facing things that I'm fearful of, I'm going to do all these other things. But in the end, I'm also going to say, okay, God, I need mm-hmm. your help. I'm going to trust that you're walking with me wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing. I'm going to trust that in the light of Easter, as, Be- as uh, Frederick Buechner said, in the light of Easter, the worst thing is never the last thing. You know, there's always hope. And, and so the worst thing for many of us is the thought of our death or the death of somebody that we love. But if we believe in Easter, then even death is yeah. not the end. And so, you know, this profound idea that there's always hope. And it's not that God causes all the cruddy things to happen in our lives. And it's not that God's going to instantaneously remove them from us. That, that, that's mm-hmm. not how it works. But God has said, you know, when you walk through the fire, I'm going to be with you. When you walk through the flood, it will not overwhelm you. I am going to be with you. And that's, you know, over and over, 140 times the Bible, you find the words, don't be afraid. And they're almost always followed by these words for I am with you. And I say in the book, it takes as much emotional energy to imagine the worst possible outcome as it does to imagine that God is walking with you no matter what. It takes the same amount of mental psychic energy to imagine one or the other. And when it comes to faith, I think, you know, Hebrews definition of faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. What that points to, I think, is the importance of our imagination. You know, God gave us an imagination to imagine things we can't see, to imagine possible threats that are on the horizon. Right? When it comes to fear, we use our imagination to imagine things we've not even seen, but they're possible threats. At the same time, our imagination plays an important role in our faith. It imagines what it's like for, I mean, I think about Dr. King's you know, favorite gospel hymn, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. Well, that requires imagination to take that metaphor and imagine God taking yeah. your hand. And holding you through this or, or holding you near or whatever. And so, you know, I get to the end of the book and I give a couple of examples of what that looks like when people are facing, you know, frightening things and facing death and, and, and able to imagine God holding them and not letting them go. And that, you know, when they breathe their last, Christ is there to welcome mm-hmm. them home. And that plays a, you know, an important role. And I, you, the very last chapter, I talk about the one thing we're meant to fear and the Bible teaches us to cultivate as a fear. And that's the fear of the Lord, which Uh, is a kind of confusing concept. You know, it doesn't mean we're supposed to be terrified of God. I think it means we're supposed to recognize the greatness, the power of God, the uh, extraordinary might of God. And when we do that, you know, Moses fell on his knees before the burning bush, terrified. You know, the disciples in the boat, you know, they fell at Jesus' feet. And uh, and I think when we see and and imagine in our minds what the scriptures have taught us about how great God is, how big God is, then somehow all the other problems we face seem a little smaller. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a part of the fear of the Lord. That's why I ended the book with this idea of the fear of the Lord, but it's also the role we play in, as Peter says, casting all your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. Yeah, that's good. I think it's a good thing to end. I mean, some would say it's the beginning of knowledge. Others would say it's a good conclusion to a book. So I think... Uh, that's a nice, that's a nice <laughs> that's touch. Good. That's a nice touch. Well, uh, yeah. the book, Unafraid... Uh, by Adam Hamilton. Don't get the one by Benjamin Cor- I mean, you can, but don't get it. That's not the one we're trying to tell you to get right now. Uh, it's, <laughs> you have a great story about describing heaven, and I'm not going to tell it on the air, but people need to go buy the book just to get that one uh, about the, the, the dog Thanks. and the scratching together. It's just really good. Anyway, uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for the book. Good, good luck with the Thank Easter you. sermon. It's not done yet, but you need to finish Thank it, you. I assume. Hey. 
Well, and you two, even though yours is done, you stinker. <laughs> I can't stand it. I, I hate you already for the fact that yours is done. But, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, hey, one other thing for, uh, listeners might be interested in is uh, we created this to be a book, just a trade book for people to read and you know, obviously pastors to be able to enjoy and read. But we also thought, what if a church made this a church-wide mm-hmm. emphasis? So uh, we have, you know, the, there's the book, but there's also a small group uh, components. There's a DVD with uh, five 15-minute video sessions. Uh, I interview a neuroscientist from Vanderbilt. I interview a Fortune 100 CEO talking about fear in the workplace. Uh, interview a, a marriage and family therapist, Bishop Will Williman, who wrote a book on oh, yeah. fear of the other, and my wife, who struggled with anxiety and panic. She's on one of the sessions. Uh, there's a leader's guide. Then there's a children's component with a children's book because we thought fear is a big thing for kids, and maybe parents can help their children with fear. And there's a youth component as well. So the idea is that you know, small groups, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, youth group, they could all be having a you know, five-week church-wide focus on this. And that in the process of doing that, everybody knows a friend who's afraid, who's struggling yeah. with fear, and that they might invite their friends to church. The pastor might speak into five different fears. You know, the book may or may not be helpful to them, but I think it would be. There'd be illustration stories and other ideas for them. And that congregations could, that really the church could once more be a place that instead of eliciting fears from people and, and stoking the fears of people, we might actually be a place to help people find that they can live unafraid with courage and hope in the light of the uncertain times wow. we live in. So, Here's the thing. If you wouldn't be doing all the work for us other pastors, writing curriculums, small group stuff, you could be done with your sermons. But instead, uh, you know, that's exactly yeah, you're doing right. that for us. So that's why uh, people like me are, are already done. So that, that's a great resource. Uh, and uh, obviously people can find that online. But uh, yeah, yeah, Adam, thanks for the time. Hey, Luke, thank you very much. Good to see you, man. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.